Welcome to the Radical Parenting Podcast. My name is Tony Shakras. I'm joined today by my co-host, Kara Porba, and we're also joined by author Deborah Carlisle Solomon today. We'll be reviewing the book, Baby Knows Best, Raising a Confident and Resourceful Child, The Rye Way. Uh, Deborah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, so this is probably like our 30th or 40th book we've reviewed for the Radical Parenting Podcast. And uh, I just want to say that, uh, you know, all of our books are kind of about honoring our children and, and you know, following their lead and, and building children who know themselves, love themselves and express themselves fully. And whether, you know, just from the title of the book and all the way through, this book is just so completely aligned with with the kind of parenting approach Kara and I are are trying to learn more about and share with others through the podcast. So I just want to thank you for for writing such a lovely book that just like really is so steeped in honoring our children. Oh, thank you. That's very yeah. good. Kara, to start, is anything you wanna you wanna say about the book? I know you read it a long time ago and just got kind of got refreshed on it. I just read it for the first time. Yeah, I, you know, my work always as a parent is limits. So that's the chapter that I that I reread the most thoroughly. And that's something I could just talk about all day, every day. You know, that's yeah. my that's my big, big one for myself personally. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think and it's a big go, one for most parents. Yeah, Sorry, talk about that a little bit more. Especially Kara. parents who are trying to do a cut like a respectful um conscious kind of parenting i think it's maybe even harder for those of us who are trying to do something that's not so mainstream mm -hmm. and get away from you know traditional punishments and rewards and whatever and still having limits and taking care yeah. of ourselves yeah i think uh it it's it's an area that most parents who practice rye certainly 99.9% .9 of the parents who I work with struggle with setting limits. It's a little bit abstract and they know they don't want to be authoritarian. They don't know they don't want to punish. Punishment just breeds violence. Um, but how to replace that? And Rye is misinterpreted in this way. A lot of people think that Rye is rather passive. It's not at all. It's authoritarian. You know, and the parent's responsibility is to help a child learn what's appropriate behavior and what's not and how to express themselves without hurting someone else. So express themselves, but, you know, without clobbering somebody emotionally or physically. And um, especially if the parent doesn't have a model, then it can't be abstract. Yeah. So a lot of yeah. people might think of that as like a little like contradictory, this idea of of baby knows best. And then, uh, you know, this uh, having authority, um, you know, in your in your relationship with your child. Can you just talk about how you obviously don't probably see those two as conflicting? No. Okay. Well, starting from the very beginning, say, uh, to, first of all, always starting with ourselves to pay attention to how we're feeling. And if a baby is doing something I don't like, then I need to tell the baby the truth. So if a baby crawls into my lap, for example, and starts to try to play with my glasses, I need to tell the baby that's not all right. Yeah, I'm not gonna let you touch my glasses, right? I'm not gonna grab them, I can just block them. Uh, if, I, if I don't tell them the truth and sort of develop that habit of communicating honestly like that, at some point down the road, things might become antagonistic, either that day as the baby continues to pursue me or when they're older, because I've not developed this habit of kindly telling them the truth and setting the limit, you know? And I think a lot of times people, especially with babies, they just think, oh, that's what babies do. And that's kind of cute. But sooner or later, you know, you can, it's sort of typical for parents to get annoyed. So set a limit before you get annoyed. Yeah, great. Uh, well, before we get into the 
some of the chapters of the book. I really want to focus on the book and then we're going to riff and just have some questions following up on it too. I want to just hear how you got into, into this kind of like philosophy and this style of parenting. It doesn't come natural to a lot of people. Yeah. So how did you get into it? It was very much by chance. Uh, a friend of mine gave another friend the book, Your Self-Confident Baby at a baby shower. And I thought that's a very intriguing title. I never would have ascribed self-confidence to a baby. So I wanted to find the book. I went to my local bookstore. They didn't have it. And as I was walking out of the bookstore, the woman who gave it to my friend was walking in. I said, oh, I was looking for that book. They don't have it. She said, of course they do. Come on. And so she turned me around. She, you know, pretty, I turned me around. She brought me back in and it had just been misshelved. Mm. And I read the book and there happened to be, you know, I was fortunate to live in Los Angeles where there are classes. And I took myself to a class and my husband and I, by, by then our son was one, about one. And so we took him to classes until he was a little over two. And it fundamentally changed how I saw him. Uh, and the title of the book, Baby Knows Best, uh, alludes to babies know best how to be babies, right? Everybody knows how to swoop in and rescue or, you know, shake a toy in a baby's, you know, face or instruct a toddler how to do something, etc. But that's not really our role. Our role is to help them socialize and learn what's okay and what's not. But they know best how to play. They know best how to learn to move until they learn to walk. We don't need to do all that. We just need to create an environment, an emotional environment and a physical environment that is conducive to learning. And we need to be emotionally available. Um, so it just, it just spoke to me. And, uh, and then I wanted to learn more. Awesome. Uh, and this is a question I usually ask at the end, but since you're already referencing that book, I'm curious um, if you if you had to pick a favorite book or recommend a book uh, like like your self confident baby, um, what what is like your favorite book or two or favorite author or two? Uh, on one of books my of this all topic? time. This isn't a, a, a Ryberg book per se. It's not written by a, a, a Rye facilitator, but it's it's. Uh, um, is congruent and it's the emotional life of the toddler by alicia lieberman is one of my very favorite books and tell and, us why uh her her perspective about toddlers and i i just love the way she writes and uh i think i think sometimes i know this happened with me sometimes you know, if my son was having a challenging day as a toddler, he was challenging me. He was, you know, maybe having a hard time himself emotionally. Um, it was really important for me, first of all, to sort of learn about reasonable expectations. He didn't wake up that morning and decide to be difficult. He was having a hard time. He was in disequilibrium. So I, it, I think it helped me to reframe some of the challenging days and challenging behaviors. And that was really important because then I could respond to him uh, you know, not always successfully, but um, with more compassion and less frustration, I could feel for him. Uh, so I, I love that book. That's one of my all time favorites. Awesome. And yeah, yeah, we'll provide a link to the emotional life of the toddler. That's by Alicia Lieberman. And then the first book uh, Deborah was referring to your self confident baby, which is by Magda, Magda mm -hmm. Gerber and Allison Johnson. We'll provide links to those in the in the um in the text along with the link to baby knows best of course um and i think the topic that you're talking about now again wasn't going to do this quite yet but i'm gonna i'm gonna play a little excerpt from the uh from the audiobook that's how i read most of the books for our podcast you did the okay. you did the narration for this for this book yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i'm gonna play just a 30 second clip that's kind of on the topic you're talking about and then uh, i want you to i want you to expound on one one aspect of it Okay. Many well-intentioned adults believe they need to begin teaching babies from birth. Oops. They count the rings as they pull them out of the box in front of a 12-month-old child. They hold up a ball and ask the toddler what color it is. 
They pace the house with baby in arms, pointing at objects and naming them. But teaching a baby or toddler isn't necessary. When you trust that your baby will learn in the course of her everyday life, the time you spend with her will be a lot more pleasurable. So I want you to expound on that idea of like a lot more pleasurable and even what you just said a moment ago, like what do you mean by more pleasurable and what are the downsides of doing it the other way, both for the relationship and for the child? Magda Gerber said, observe more, do less, do less, mm -hmm. enjoy most, I believe it is. I always, for some reason, get that one mm -hmm. messed up sometimes. But mm -hmm. anyway, observe more, be be less important, you know, practice quieting yourself and observing and trying to let go of your expectations of how your baby or toddler will, you know, what will happen and see what happens. Be present in this moment together and be less important, meaning don't actively teach. We're always teaching by how we're modeling, you know, the kind of person that we're being, that we're hoping our child will become. But we don't have to actively teach by this is a red ring, this is a blue one, etc. Um, maybe the baby's paying attention to some other aspect of that object anyway. So why should I teach what's important to me? Let the baby discover, let the child discover what's intriguing or important to them, right? So I think no matter the child's age, I think it's important to start with quieting ourselves. And then if the child is old enough to ask a question, start with what the child is curious about instead of uh, what I think is important for them to learn. Trust that they will learn through the course of their everyday life and their exploration, their own independent exploration, because that kind of active teaching too, it teaches the child to be helpless, you know, learned helplessness. I remember there was a bait, there were, there were two babies in two different classes, but they're at the same stage of development. They were able to roll over onto their stomachs and stretch their arms out in front of them, but they were not crawling yet. Right? So the first baby, she reached for something that was just beyond her fingertips. She tried for about 10 seconds. Then she looked over her shoulder at her mother and went, eh. Like, help me, get that for me. And so her mother very kindly did what I did before I discovered Rye and pushed this little ball towards her daughter so her daughter could pick it up. 10 seconds, she only tried for 10 seconds, if that long. Another baby, same stage of development, something right beyond his fingertips, he couldn't get it. And then he spent the next, it was almost 30 minutes on his stomach, observing the other babies and adults in the class, observing, you know, the ceiling, etc. And then he looked over his shoulder and made a sound to his mother because he wanted her to pick him up. The next week he came to class, same thing happened. There was nothing within reach, but there was one toy that was about this far away from his fingertips. And he went like this. He grasped the sheet that we covered the play space in. He grasped it, he pulled it up in the air, and that caused the toy to roll toward him. He mm. solved his own problem. And his mother said, he's been practicing this and perfecting this all week at home. And then she said, does this mean he's never gonna be, a, he's never gonna wanna crawl because he can just attract all the toys to him? You know, immediately the anxiety kicked in. I said, no, how fantastic, he solved his own problem, right? He learned to rely on himself and the look on his face when he succeeded, you know, to, you know, who would wanna rob him of that, you know? So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but there, there are, uh, you know, sort of a lot of reasons, I think, uh, for us to practice holding back and just observing. And of course, responding to the child when they invite us, maybe they show us something, uh, but not problem solving for them and not actively teaching. We don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. I want you to say more than like, we don't need to do that. Because in a way that just sounds like a, like a, like a religion or or, or just oh. like a, <clears throat> a should, but like, I think that there are very like clear developmental, developmental psychology, psychological 
like impacts of the parenting style you're talking about versus the parenting style that I think is very normal that most parents think of as good mm -hmm. parenting, which is teaching them everything and making sure they're reading on cue and that they're walking on cue and that they're sitting up on cue, you know, on, on schedule. I mean, yeah. um, both, both developmental yeah. psychological, psychological impacts of their own, you know, self-confidence and, and, capacity and confidence like you said also impacts on the relationship with the parent um but but yeah i want to hear from you like what are those reasons it's not just that we yeah. don't need to it's that you think it's beneficial to the child to not do that and that it's and that it's harmful to the child in some way to to parent in that way yeah tony that's a really good question so first of all i think it's really important to remember rise focuses children zero to two so what i'm saying is, is specifically for that developmental stage or those stages. And, you know, by the time a child goes to school, then they're receptive to learning from other people and even before then, but this is zero to two. So when a, when a baby, when a toddler is playing, when they're trying, when they're exploring an object or a toddler is trying to stack some cups together, right? Um, they're, they're investigating, they're, they have, you know, trying to figure out how things work. They're comparing, they're noticing differences. They're, they're learning how to observe deeply if they're not interrupted, right? Um, to really sort of dive into something that interests them, that they choose, right? They're, they're learning how to learn. They're learning their relationship to problem solving. They're learning to be tenacious when they feel like being tenacious. Maybe sometimes it's sort of enough of that. I can't figure it out. I'm going to move on to something else. Right. And so if we're in the habit of actively teaching, we can see how the child's relationship to learning could be different. That as soon as they hit a bump in the road, they ask somebody else to tell them how to do it instead of how can I how can I sort this out for myself? Which is not to say that if a child is frustrated, etc., that we're just going to sit there passively. We'll talk to them about it. Yeah, you, boy, it's hard to get those cups to stack together, isn't it? I can see, you know, but it yeah. really is about developing themselves as learners. Mm. And, and, and as you alluded to before, the, the sense of accomplishment and agency, yeah. you know, that they have when they're able to solve a problem or make have some effect in the world like oh, i did that you know yeah that's powerful stuff yeah, yeah. Karen, and i, I had to learn how to do less i mean i definitely i think we were talking about that i i was before i discovered where i was actively you know the playmate the leader and i had to practice doing less you know it wasn't something that came naturally to me mm. Yeah, my son is uh, a little over two and a half. He's pretty slow in language. He's pretty far behind in speaking. And uh, his mom and I split custody. And so, like, I've sometimes wondered if the fact that we are just so attentive to him and so, like, eager to, like, interpret his movements and gestures and, and whatever and anticipate his needs if if we've if we've kind of, you know, like robbed him of his ability to advocate for himself and speak in some ways. He'll find his way. He'll find yeah. his way. I remember yeah. being concerned about my son's language development because I compared him to other children in this Rye class. And the facilitator just looked at my husband and I and said, because we both are talkers, and said, you know, maybe this week you should practice talking less. You know, if you ask him a question, just stop <laughs> and give him time to respond. And so we did, and we noticed a difference. Hmm. You know, so sometimes, you know, when, when children are first acquiring language, they may not be able to summon up the words that they're wanting to, you know, summon up. It may take them a few moments. And so it can be helpful f to give them time to give them time and space yeah good Kara uh feel free to jump in anytime otherwise I've got I've got a few questions prepared okay I have one question although I'm worried it's gonna throw us off track because I've been actually wondering about this Deborah you know 
I know that rye is, is very much for infants and toddlers. And um, now that my daughter is seven, I still get so much out of it. I mean, like in when I was rereading sections of your book, there's still so much of it is relevant. Yeah. And, and I don't always know which parts are, are relevant and which parts may not be. So that what you're talking about mm-hmm. with the active teaching mm-hmm. is a big dilemma for me because I'm a teacher, I'm a music teacher. Oh. And, you know, Tony and I have been reading books about all kinds of things, but also we've been reading about, you know, Peter Gray and unschooling mm-hmm. and things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in those, this may be on the scope of what we're doing with this book and with the talking about the why approach, but, you know, I am wondering at what stages is active teaching most valuable and how to keep it as child-based as possible, where it is the child's curiosity and inherent desire to learn that is driving them. And because it's so easy, I feel like with babies and toddlers, that's what I loved about discovering Rye is that, you know, I'd never potty trained my child or taught her to walk or taught her. I didn't, I just, I didn't have to, you know, it was, it was a relief for me to feel like she's going to do all that stuff on her own in her own time. I couldn't really stop her if I tried, like she's in charge of that. She's in charge of learning to walk and learning to talk and all these things, you know, and then at some point there are some cultural things that we pass down, such as, you know, music where a child can make their own music, but they also can learn the songs of their culture and Mm -hmm. learn classical music. And so I don't know, for me, I have a big um, slight kind of philosophical dilemma there. And I wonder what you, what you think about all that. I think by the time a child is four or five, you know, going to school, uh, I, I don't see it as a dilemma, but I, I think to go back to that principle of sensitive observation of the child, which is a rye principle, mm. you know, I think I think it's wonderful to expose children to all sorts of things and then see where the path takes them. You know, whether it's music, if it's a particular instrument or exposing them to to music songs of their particular cultures or anything else i think that's a wonderful thing but then to you know observe you know even even sort of studying subjects in school starting with well we're going to talk about the we're going to study the planets what are you curious about you know and Mm. asking the children what are they curious about and start there especially for young children Instead of let's open the textbook and this is what we're going to teach you because this is what every child needs to know. Well, right. if I was a student, I wouldn't like that, you know. Yeah, it's, it's like I was at a Q and A Q and A recently, and the, the 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 moderator asked all the questions, never asked the audience, and I left feeling very frustrated because he didn't ask ask my question, you know. Mm. So I think this to it's a balancing act when they get older. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to back to the conversation about this the the difference between the parenting style that is like yeah, like what we're still talking about what we think the child should know. You know, they need to learn all the letters of the alphabet, they need to learn all the colors, they need to learn all the shapes, they need to, they need to learn whatever versus like following the child's folly and following their interests. Um and and yeah, trusting that your baby knows best. It, from my standpoint, there's you know two benefits. Like I mentioned, one is that the nature of the relationship that it fosters, like you said, it's just more pleasant. <laughs> the nature of the relationship it fosters between you and your child is one of just like connection. It's not one of mm-hmm. like hierarchy or, or or something like that. So mm-hmm. I, I think that really appeals to me as a parent. And then the other piece, which I think is equally important, is. I think it like subconsciously sends a signal to your child when you're, when you're saying like, you need to know this or you need to know that, like you're subconsciously sending a signal to your child. In my opinion, this is based on just my life experience that, that somehow like just how they are right now, isn't really good enough. And, and 
vice versa when you're just like when you're just like a little bit more zen with your approach with parenting i think it just subconsciously sends this message to your child like you are good enough everything is fine you are fine and so i have a question for you which is that a lot of us weren't raised that way and so how can a parent that never was really learned and still doesn't even believe that like i am okay i am i am good enough how does the parent that spent their whole life learning that they're not good enough how do they teach a child to to accept themselves as they are or how do they at least avoid teaching a child that they aren't good enough yeah that's a really good question what comes to mind is therapy meditation mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i mean being human you know trying to evolve is ongoing process right it doesn't stop and so being a good parent i th i think of parenting as, as it's a way of being it's not a way of doing it's not what should i do about being parents how shall i be right mm. i can talk 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 you know <clears throat> but a child is is you know, taking in my behavior, my verbal and nonverbal communication. That's what's important. And and ultimately for them to lead a happy life, it's about emotional intelligences. It's not their IQ. It's not how early did they learn to count to ten or, you know, can they do trig in high school? That's not gonna be a determinant of, you know, their happiness in life it's it's how well can they self-regulate you know how attuned are they to other people it's the, it's the emotional intelligences that are more important and and the early relationship that they have with their parent or parents so whatever we can do to better ourselves to become more whole to look to if we didn't have the models when we were children to look for models in our adult life is important and also to accept that we're going to blow it sometimes <laughs> and when we do to take time to repair you know sorry i raised my voice i got frustrated i'm sorry that scared you you know and uh, to reassure the child that it wasn't them that you love them etc but um yeah and i i it always starts with us, which is, that's a profound responsibility. Yeah. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. And talk to me a little bit about, about the being in tune with other people's emotions. I don't, I don't remember that coming up in the book very much, but it's definitely a passion of mine is just helping ensure that, uh, that my son is understanding like is literate in reading facial expressions as much or more than he's literate in reading the letters of the alphabet and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned that in your answer, talk to us a little bit about, about that and about that role in moral development and in emotional intelligence. And... I think we talk to a child about their feelings. Right? So, um, and this can take practice too, because a lot of parents get overwhelmed and, dysregulated when their children are dysregulated so they want to shut it down they want to shut the upset down because it it stirs them up you know so for us to observe ourselves oh i'm feeling stirred up i'm having this urge to just distract or whatever it is because i am feeling uncomfortable with this then say it out loud you know i think mm. speaking it out loud can help to dissipate it oh i'm feeling dysregulated because i you know i'm feel i'm feeling upset because you're so upset you know, you're crying really hard. Uh, you know, I'm just going to hold you until you feel better. So we can both feel better because I don't feel very good right now. You know, like to try to develop that habit of not only observing the child, observing ourselves and then speaking about it Yeah, Ooh. with a with a young baby. Some we very often will use the word upset because or with a toddler because we can't be sure maybe the child's anxious, you know, or sad or, or et cetera, et cetera. And so upset is vague, you mm -hmm. know, uh, once we can sort of identify it, then, you know, especially the toddler who's talking, they say, are you, are you anxious? Are you scared of the dog? Or, 
etc. But then they're developing a vocabulary for their feelings. And also, if there is a conflict, if they're at a playdate or at the playground and somebody's upset, to try to sort of be peaceful and a little bit quiet so that the children can take each other in. Oh, he didn't like that when I grabbed that truck out of his hand. He's crying really hard. Then we can give a few words to speak to that. Yeah, he's upset. He, he still wants to play with that truck. Quiet. Then they take each other in. Sometimes there's this tendency to pick up the upset child and remove them from the situation, right? No, let them stay there and see, you know, and and wait until the conflict is over and one of one or both of the children move away. Because very often the adult is the one who's necessary to keep things regulated. And as soon yeah. as they move away, the conflict erupts again. So I think when we're in the habit, Tony, of talking about things and and giving space for children to really take each other in, they become sensitive to each other. You know, I'll never oh. forget in my toddler class years ago, a mom had to leave the room to go to the loo, go to the toilet. And her daughter was just standing at the gates crying. And all the other children retreated to their parents and they stopped. And I said, yeah, she's upset because her mom went to the bathroom, but her mom will be back in a couple minutes. And I, and I moved close to this child and uh, who was crying. And then just very quickly, one of the boys came over to the gate and he stood and he put his hand on this girl's back. And then he leaned forward and he was looking at her, you know, in her eyes. And he stood like that for, I think it was about two minutes before her mother came back in. He didn't move. He stayed with her. He didn't, you know, say anything. I guess he probably couldn't. He was too young. But it was definitely, oh, I, you're upset. I want to comfort you. Mm -hmm. Nobody prompted him to do it, but he mm -hmm. knew what it was like to be upset when his mom left the room and he knew what to do and he knew mm -hmm. her well enough, you know, because they developed a relationship. So I think, you know, another of the right principles is basic trust. So basic trust in the children and basic trust in nature <laughs> that if we model good enough, none of us are perfect, but pretty good, it will manifest in our children. And we all blow it sometimes and they might blow it sometimes and then we'll talk about it, mm -hmm. right? And I think for me that all of this was a relief. I didn't need to, I, I didn't need to do so much. I, I could just relax and sit quietly and observe and enjoy being with my son, hanging out. Yeah. What I a imagine. revelation. It's very, yeah. you know, countercultural. Yeah. Aren't you supposed mm -hmm. to do, do, do? Yeah. Yeah, I imagine that's really hard for some people. And it's even frustrating to me, like reading, um, what was it, Alfie Cohn's book? Uh, uh, what was it? It wasn't Punished by Rewards. Punished. What was the, what was the? Unconditional Parenting. Oh. Yeah, where he's he's talking about like not doing all these things, but he's not talking about what to do. And it's <laughs> yeah. the same message. It's like being versus doing. But yeah, like you said, like a lot of us have just been, don't even know what that means. A lot of us just yeah. don't even know what that means. Well, just practice for five minutes, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I remember there was a parent in my class who I had to sit next to for a while because always there was this urge to, you know, touch or offer a toy or something. And so I would sit next to her and just, I put my arm out, just kind of wink at her and she would kind of laugh. Like it was very unconscious, you know? Yeah. So just start with a few minutes. I'm gonna sit here quietly and it's going to be excruciating and then it will be less excruciating a few days from now. <laughs> yeah. One of the women we interviewed for this, not an author, but another like radical honesty uh, trainer or former radical mm -hmm. honesty trainer. She, one of her pieces of advice was to get really clear on the quality of the relationship. What are the priorities you have and the quality of the relationship that you want with your child? And then just come back to that in every moment as more important than whether or not this or that gets spilled or this or that gets learned or this or that gets resolved. Like yeah. come back to that core thing. Like what do I want my child to know? Mm. And 
I think that one of the things that stood out for me in the books we have read was um, Janet Lansbury, who, <laughs> um, who is almost just like a, I don't know, she holds a special place, I think, in Kara and Maya's uh, list of authors. But uh, she just said, like, I want my, like, my core thing is I want my child to know that every feeling, every emotion, every expression of them is, like, lovable you know, acceptable and important to me. Yeah. 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 It makes me want to cry. Just even saying those words, like oh, yeah. I just love that being in like the underlying focus of my relationship with my child. Yeah. To be accepted, mm -hmm. fully accepted no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, ooh. Mm -hmm. Radical <laughs> acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Deborah, I, I appreciate, you know, you saying that it can be excruciating for us as adults, you know, mm -hmm. and our, this is where our, our radical honesty mentor, Brad Blanton talks about, you know, that our kids can be our teachers are yeah. uh, because they are so just present in the moment, curious, exploring. And I, uh, so like I do special time with my daughter. Mm -hmm. most days where where I will you know for 20 minutes or whatever I'll just do whatever she wants and we mm -hmm. might we might wrestle or we might play dress up or whatever it's she's yeah. in charge mm -hmm. and um and it's so often it is it's really lovely and also I can't believe how difficult it is for me <laughs> you know because for me as the adult you know and I'm a single parent so I'm like I'm the one person in this house with like a fully developed frontal lobe, you know, and I'm thinking, I mean, that's questionable, but mostly developed. And it's, you know, I'm thinking about the next day's schedule or like my work or this or that, or da, 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 da. I haven't been to the grocery store in, in a week or, and, yeah. uh, it, and it's wonderful to be able to just drop into that childlike mm -hmm. place of like really playing and being right here right now. Yeah. And, I'm amazed how difficult it is even after lots of practice, you know, and, and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to practice. Yeah. It. Yeah. That's fantastic that you do that. Because I think yes. a lot of people leave aren't even conscious that they're not fully present. Right. Yeah. 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 It's just their way of being mm -hmm. so many of our way of being most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've, a question just your advice on on an issue that i'm that i'm dealing with with my son right now he's two and a half we've never really watched tv or video except in like really special occasions like we're stuck on the airplane and we've run out of books or 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 something like that and he's just like obsessed with it and if i do give it to him like he was having like a potty issue where he had to spend a little too much time on the potty before and so i was letting him watch video on a spare phone while he was there and he just wants it's his appetite for it seems like endless and he probably averages, I think his mom is the same as me. I mean, he probably averages, you know, zero minutes a day and then once every week or two, like, you know, 10 minutes or something like that. So he gets wow. very little, but when he does get it, he just like really wants it. <laughs> and I don't want to follow his lead in this sense, but I don't, I, yeah, I'm just curious your, your advice with a child who is just like obsessed with wanting to watch video. Does he ask for it a lot or? Mm -hmm. I mean, he can't yes. really speak much, but oh, his yeah, sign yeah. for video But he's signing this. that he wants it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I hear this from so many people, good for you for just just a tiny amount. It's really, it's really your call. I mean, I, I, I you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics is pretty emphatic, but you've done very well for two and a half years. But some children can sort of let it go and other children, oh my goodness, as soon as they see it, they just want more and more and more. And so, uh, you know, it's commendable that you set a limit like that. And I would try to hold the line. I would hold the yeah. line. For some parents, when their children just love it so much, they decide that holding or they experience that holding the line is just so difficult that they dispense with it altogether because it's just too difficult. And that, you know, the the research can't keep up with the with the tech mm -hmm. you know so i don't think any of us can be sure but if, when we look at the older population the number of people who are addicted to their devices 
you know, it's kind of a cautionary tale. It's a good reason to do what you're doing and really limit it. I I think, but that's just my opinion. It's not scientific. Yeah. You want to tell us what else you've been working on, you know, since this book? This yeah. book came out, when did it come out? It came out in 2013, out almost 10 ago. years ago. Yeah. yeah. Came out a while ago. You know, I, yeah, I was executive director of Rye for eight years. And then when I left that, I started my own practice and I realized that there was so many people around the world who wanted access to ride training. So I spent a lot of time in Asia and Europe training people. And then the pandemic happened. So I had to stay close to home or at home. What am I talking about? I stayed at home. And um, so I've been teaching courses online and I have my peaceful toddler course that I teach online. And it's really for parents who don't have access to an in-person class because of what i realized when i would when i would teach in person and people had read rye books they had a lot of similar questions and that reading can still be so abstract it's like some of your questions have have been sort of yeah but what does that look like you know how do you do that and um so my husband shot my classes my parent infant classes for two years so the course includes footage from my classes and i think that helps to concretize things like oh that's what that looks like because some of it is hard to put into words you know mm -hmm. what does a firm limit limit sound like no it doesn't sound authoritarian <laughs> it's actually very kind it's an act of kindness so anyhow that's what i've been focused on to to really there are more and more people who want to learn about rye but they can't come to a class mm -hmm. so i want to help them find their way awesome yeah. Yeah. Uh, Kara, do you have any other questions? Um, I want to talk about limits some more. Great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because I, the way I think of it, this is how I sort of spin it to myself to to make limits easier. Is you know, it's kind of like the the yes space. As I don't know if that that's Janet Lansbury's term. I don't know what the yeah. Magda said a hundred percent safe space safe space. So it's like there are, you know, it's been carefully designed with, you know, limits in terms of it's a certain amount of space and there's only certain things in there. So, yeah. but then the baby has the freedom to actually play and explore without ever being told no or without being in danger at all. And so the limits create freedom, essentially. Whereas if the child was free to just roam around throughout the home there would be many many things that might not be safe for them or that might be annoying to the parent or whatever so this this is kind of the idea that i was getting at in the very beginning where and like where as tony as you said it seems like a dilemma of like you know we're going for freedom and confidence and exploration in our baby but yet where did how do these limits come in you know, and yet they're necessary for us as mm -hmm. parents for our self-care and sanity and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I'm working and working to like give myself more permission to be honest about the limits that I actually have, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, and you said something really, I'm trying to find the quote in the book actually, or it may have been a quote from Magda, but something about if there's something we don't like, and yet we let our child do it anyway, you know, we develop like this resentment or annoyance or whatever. And our child, you know, they don't really deserve that. And it's actually mm -hmm. more kind to say, mm -hmm. no, actually, I, I, I won't let you play with with that mm -hmm. particular thing, you can play with this other thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm sort of talking to myself here. But is there <laughs> anything else you would say about limits? I think another important aspect of it is that it's modeling how to clearly articulate this is not okay with me, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. so that when a person is older, they can say, no, I'm not, I don't want you to do that. Yeah. Loud and clear uh -huh. without any hesitation. Yeah. And so it has, it, I think it has implications down the road that are profound. I remember mm. observing in a nursery school and there are these two girls playing together in this little house. Maybe they were three and a half. And all of a sudden, one of them just said, I'm mad. Just like this. You know, and her friend kind of looked at her. And I thought, and she just, she, you know, the yard, everybody in the yard just sort of stopped. And I thought, how fantastic yeah. that she just 
she didn't hesitate. She just said it, you know? And also when we don't tell the truth, a young child, they're much more attuned to our nonverbal communication than we as adults, I think, have lost that facility to a certain degree, you mm -hmm. know? And so they're sensing that something is, a, I was going to say arrive, something is not right, mm -hmm. but, but you're not talking about it. So tell the truth. And, and yeah. having clear limits and knowing that your parent tells you the truth and will say, oh, no, that, I don't like that kind of thing helps a child to feel secure. They're not mm. having to sort of, how does she feel about that? I feel like maybe she didn't like that. Secure children are, are, are ones who, you know, the parents are able to set clear limits in a kind way and they may complain about it. That's all right. They have their point of view. I think, uh, yes. you know, when people are in a quest to be able to set a limit in such a way that the child will always just sort of be agreeable and cheerful about it, you know, that's an impossible quest. And that's that's a hard juncture in the road. We have to f sort of follow through, you know? It, yeah. Yeah. It, for, for, for us to be able to stay regulated and for our children. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That does yeah. remind me of a question I have. Um, yeah, and thank you. That was very clarifying. It's like the tell. I never thought of holding a limit as telling the truth, but that's really that's what it is. I'm telling the truth about what I want or don't want, mm -hmm. and I'm modeling that for my child. Yeah. That yeah. you know, you can do the same because I got very a lot of modeling as a child. Of you know, my mother was an excellent caretaker and she was an excellent model for like overriding what she wanted or needed to mm. take care of the children. And, you know, so that's what's, that is what is my knee jerk reaction is to override yeah. my own impulse to take care of my child. And I don't think I'm doing any favors to yeah. her when I do that. So telling the truth about what I like or don't like or what I want and don't want. And I guess it seems to me like there's two different kinds of limits. There's one kind of limit where I'm not really requiring anything of my child. I'm just saying, no, we're not going to go to the toy store today. I like, I, I hear you really want to go there and I'm sorry, we can't go. We're not going today where I'm not asking her to do anything. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of in a in the power position of mm -hmm. of either taking us to the toy store or not, right? Or if mm -hmm. I say, "Yeah, I can see you really want to be with me right now, and I'm cooking dinner. I mm -hmm. um, I, I'll be able to play with you later mm -hmm. or something." Where I'm in charge of what I do, and she's allowed to be upset about it. Mm -hmm. But then there's another kind of limit right? Where I'm, am asking her to do something where maybe I'm asking her to get her clothes on and walk out the door, or I'm asking her to get in the car in her pajamas or whatever <laughs> it is. Right. Or mm -hmm. I'm asking her to, I mean, she's seven now, so this is, she's not a toddler anymore. So right. like I get really annoyed when she drops things on the floor because she'll just go around like just anything that she has, she just will drop it on the floor. And then the house is like a tornado, right? And um, I could I could follow her around all day and pick up after her, and you know I don't want to. So I, that's where limits get tricky. I I think for me because I can't follow around her and stop her from dropping things on the floor. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it seems to me like there's two different kinds of limits, and that they're very different. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, with the dropping things on the floor, I wonder if, you know, you could say before special time, I'd like you to pick up these things from the floor. And mm. that may feel overwhelming to her. You know, different children are different. So where do you want to start? What do you want to pick up first? Oh, I'll pick up that. Okay, I'll put this away. Maybe, you know, if she has a hard time getting going, you can start with her. So it's something you're yeah. doing together. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have special time. So it's not that, you know, and if she refuses, well, I'd like the floor to be clear before we have special time. And she may fuss about that. So it's not as though it's a threat, but it's just sort of 
it kind of follows logic. Sometimes there are things that we don't want to do that we have to do before we do something pleasurable. That's life, mm-hmm. you know? So I think yeah. there's a lesson in that. And there's also yeah, a lesson it's... in the disappointment of not going to the toy store to, you know, when when parents kind of routinely cave to their children, the children have less experience of managing their disappointment and discovering they can get to the other side of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not a bad thing for a child to be disappointed sometimes, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think it, it, it's a kind of a, a compliment for us to trust them that they can handle it, you know? Yeah. That being disappointed is, is maybe not so fun and they can, you know, they can be disappointed and get through that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, casting it ahead to, to sort of not be stopped in your tracks by disappointment or immobilized. Oh yeah. You know, wallow in it for a couple of minutes and then carry on. Yeah. Which children do so well. Yeah. (laughs) Some adults do it too. Yeah. Yeah. Great. For anyone who's just joining us, you're listening to the Radical Parenting Podcast. We're talking to Deborah Carlisle Solomon about her book, Baby Knows Best. Um, we're going to wrap up this conversation fairly fairly soon. Uh, but Deborah, I wanted to see if there's any, I know for you, it's been a while since you've even gone over this book. You've been doing so many other things in the years since. But uh, is there anything else, just kind of like primary messages of the book that you that you that you want to get across and you'd help someone who's who's thinking about reading this book to to know about about baby knows best i think the notion of what does it really mean to treat a baby a toddler another person with respect and what does that look like with a baby who for instance can't say to us oh i don't like the way you picked me up or a toddler who you know might be able to say, I didn't like it when you walked out of the room and didn't tell me. So it takes what is sort of the concept of respect, which I think is abstract and means different things to different people, and concretizes it. Magda Gerber's Rye Principles give us a framework from which to approach parenting. And with, I think, not just theory, but concrete steps that we can take to build respectful relationships with our children while also taking care of ourselves. Because Magda Gerber, for me, was the first sort of infant development specialist or book that I read that talked about the importance of the parent taking care of themselves first. Because if we're Mm. depleted, we don't have anything much left to give to our children. We're not you know, running on all cylinders. And that for me, was eye opening. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The, of the 30 or so books, Karen, I've read, especially the ones that are more recent, it's definitely a gr- growing and recurring theme in these books mm-hmm. that parents yeah. really need to be focused on take focusing on taking care of themselves. Your yeah. last chapter in the book, I think is, is parenting support. Anything you mm-hmm. want to, you want to say about the idea of, of parents, taking care of themselves and making sure they're resourced with the support they need? Uh, I, parenting is hard. <laughs> There's no way around it. It's, it's, it's very hard. It's uh, profound and it's difficult. And I think everybody needs support of some kind, you know, whether they, you know, maybe it's not specifically parenting. Maybe it's just helpful to talk to a therapist or a good friend or, or, or schedule time every week to do something that's just for you when you're not with your child that's supportive, that's self-supportive, to fill your cup and uh, seek out. I mean, now there's so many groups online too, where like-minded parents can come together and support each other while they're also learning. I think that's really important because for most of us, intuition isn't enough. It's just not, we're gonna hit a roadblock or have some challenge that we can't figure out. So to seek it out, don't try to do it on your own. and. And whatever way work, you know, different people need different things, I think. Great. Uh, well, thank you. And again, uh, just to summarize the book, it, it starts with kind of an overview of the, the Rye Way and of, of, of what Deborah learned um, from reading about uh, Magda Gerber and, and Rye, which stands for Saving Resources for... Infant Educarers. Educaring, Educarers. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and then moves on to you know the very early years of being at home with your newborn. Uh, some a, a chapter on sleep. Anything you want to say about sleep? Oh, sleep is another tall topic. That yeah. that babies are you know can learn how to go to sleep on their own, mm-hmm. but uh, the parents need to give them space to practice. So, if if a parent has been in the habit of helping the child to sleep, that it might take a couple of nights of some crying, which I'm not saying let your baby cry it out, but um, let your baby practice. And uh, I mean, there's more to it. And it involves maybe going into the room when they've been crying a bit to comfort them, to reassure them, and then going back out, etc. But that babies can learn to go to sleep on their own. I'm not talking about a newborn baby, but down the road. Mm-hmm. I'm actually struggling with that with my son right now. He's just gone through waves where he's like, okay with me leaving him when he goes to sleep and, and less okay with it. Uh, so yeah, I'd actually love your advice just in the last couple months. Um, we used to be able to just like read our books and then we have kind of like a final bedtime book and then he'd let me tuck him in and still for nap time. He's totally great with it. He's, he'll say like, Dada stay. And then I'll say, no, I got to go do my work. I love you. And he'll just like, you know, be happy and like cozy and he's happy for me. He's fine with me leaving him. And I know he sleeps better. I mean, he, he, when he wakes up in the morning, he rustles around and then will sometimes sleep for another hour or so. Whereas when he used to sleep in a pack and play next to my bed, he'd wake up and see me and immediately want to like wake up. I know he sleeps better on his own, but he goes through these phases where he's really upset when, when I don't want to, I mean, when I, when, when I want to leave the room before he goes to sleep at night. Um, and yeah, I don't want to follow the cry it out approach. I, I, uh, so yeah, I, I'm curious for your advice on, on that when kids go through those stages and they do really want you to stay with them as they fall asleep. Yeah. You know, you can talk to him about it earlier in the day and say, I'm going to help you practice. I'm going to help mm. you practice going to sleep on your own. I know that you can learn how to do this mm-hmm. and um, and then go through your routine. And does he sleep in a bed that he can't get out of, or can he walk out? Of no, the he room? can get out. Mm-hmm. He can. And is there a gate on his door or anything like that? To yeah, I mean, I usually keep his door open because he asks me to. And then there's yeah. a baby gate at the top that keeps yeah. him from going down the stairs. So I see. He I see. he never he's never left his room so far. He has never even okay. tried. Even walked out to the baby gate. Yeah. So I would talk to him about it ahead of time. And then, you know, it's it's listening for the cry because, you know, the cry is sort of cycle, right? And so if you go in straight away, then he's going to learn, oh, all I have to do is peep and my dad will come in. And, you know, um, it, it's kind of a muscle that he has to develop. So just let him cry for a little bit. And then if, when it starts to cycle up, you don't want it to become distress, right? Mm-hmm. So if the, if the crying is complaint, or protest mm-hmm. like I don't like this. Let him cry a little. Go in and reassure him, just for not for very long. You know, maybe gave him a little pet. Say it's time to rest, and I'm gonna come check on you when you're sleeping. You know, to reassure him that you're gonna come back in when he's sleeping. I think that's mm-hmm. important for them to hear. Mm-hmm. That means oh, I better go to sleep. <laughs> you know, and then go back out and listen again. So when when you go out and you come back in, you're responding to the crying, right? He's reassured that you leave, but you come back, that you're not going to just leave him in distress. And um, sort of, and it might take two nights of going in 20 times, you know? I was going to say, if he got out of bed, then to usher him back into his bed in a very boring way, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when they're a little older, like three or four, sometimes that's the the challenge that the child will mm-hmm. just walk out of the room and mm-hmm. then they just need to be ushered back to bed without without any conversation yeah um but i think it can if if nighttime is different especially if it's dark when he's going to sleep it, it mm-hmm. existentially it's different i think than the nap time um but for them to for him to be reassured that you're there and you're going to you know, you're listening for him. Um, mm-hmm. So for you, the challenge is to not go in as soon as he begins to cry, or at least for most parents, that's the challenge. See how long you can wait. As Magda said, wait, 
and wait a moment longer, you know, mm -hmm. see if you can stretch out a little bit, but not to the point where he's in distress. That's, you don't want to do that. Right. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't have any other questions or any, anything else, any other resources you want to steer people, people towards. We'll share the, uh, rie.org, uh, website with people as well as the books that you referenced, uh, Great. including, um, it sounds like emotional life of the toddler, which kind of picks up where your book, uh, leaves off. Yeah. Uh, uh, any, anything else you want and to steer people towards? Where do we find your course? People who, who are interested in your uh, online they course can sign up on my website. And I also, if they sign up on my website, I also send out very brief parenting guidance emails once a week, uh, to introduce people, try to, um, help them begin to practice some of these ideas. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. There it is. DebraCarlisleSolomon.com. Right. cool all right well thank you again for for joining us we really appreciate your time you've been My listening pleasure. to the radical parenting podcast uh you can hear us at uh 89.3 hd3 fm in denver 92.9 fm in denver and online at uh radicalhonesty.com and wherever you find your podcasts so uh, we want to thank deborah deborah carlisle solomon for joining us again thank you for being here Thank you for having me. And thank you, Kara, for joining us as well. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye.